to the Cult of Domesticity podcast, a podcast about history, true crime, and whatever life brings us. I'm Courtney, and every week I am joined by another fascinating person. Let's see what we're going to talk about this week. Welcome back, devotees. This week, we're with Dr. Alyssa Lucas of multiple podcast fame. (laughs) Do you want to tell us about your multiple famous podcasts? Yes. Well, I don't know how famous they are, but I do have multiple podcasts. The first one is Best Forevers, a podcast for kindred spirits, and it focuses on celebrating friendships and working through the issues that friends might experience. And my second one is <laughs> kind of goes to a left, takes a hard left, if you will. It's called Fatalities, spelled T-E-A-S, and it's a true crime podcast where friends get together and talk about the true crime cases that have stuck with them, talk about contributing factors and other theories, and we do that while drinking some tea because without tea, friends, and good conversation, there's nothing but darkness and chaos is my tagline. <laughs> I mean, it also works for Game of Thrones, too, so... Oh, totally. <laughs> Which I talk about on both podcasts. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, we were when we were planning this, she was like, I can't record after 8.30. And I was like, I couldn't figure out why. And then today I was just like, Game, Game of, of Thrones, Thrones is on, yo. Gotta get my snacks together. I got, I got stuff to do. <laughs> uh, I normally just drink way too much wine. Yes, that's the way to do it, right? You don't know how many people are going to die. You don't know what's going to happen. Sob into my stuffed llama. And just go with it. <laughs> I I sob into my real life cat. <laughs> I'm sure he appreciates that. He's just like, what is, why am I wet? Yeah. No, last week during the really intense, well, during the Winterfell episode where it was really intense and they had the battle and stuff, I was so worked up that I actually held one of my cats for like 15 minutes. And it's like she knew my blood pressure was high. And so she was just like, I'm going to sit here and make my mom feel better. And she just purred for like 20 minutes and then she was like, okay, I'm done. Yeah, I, because I have a text chain I do. I had to stop at one moment because I ran out of whiskey because I went to whiskey. I was like, uh-uh, let's go. <laughs> Can't even handle wine anymore. No, I was like, this This is going to be intense. I think I was doing whiskey and tea, which doesn't make sense to get, well, I guess a hot toddy, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I looked at my hand. I was literally shaking because of so yeah. much suspense. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and i believe at one point but i would literally it was just kind of like screaming for yeah. i don't know <laughs> why and you know my neighbors probably appreciated it oh your neighbors were probably like is she still alive <laughs> no one called the cops on me so i don't know if that's good or bad my neighbor was gone and one of my cats as soon as i started screaming was like deuces i'm out <laughs> and he ran out and then he slept in the basket of dirty clothes down the hallway outside because he was scared <laughs> he's like mommy scared me yeah and, and mama was scared too <laughs> oh yeah there was a it was very dark i never have this darkness problem that everyone else has with their game of thrones screen no i watch it on my laptop i i have it through amazon yeah and i watched it on my tv but i also watched it i recorded with kate and i think i got to it at like 11 and i just mm-hmm. turned off all, i had like one light on and so it was just like it wasn't oh, yeah. it wasn't like bright enough in my apartment to like yeah. hinder it. Yeah. No, I think Game of Thrones is one of those shows that you should absolutely 100% watch in the dark. Like mm-hmm. it should be like movie theater experience, right? Like um and I would normally watch it on my television in the dark, but at that point it's like I'm ready for bed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then it's yeah. like I can't sleep cuz I'm so amped up about what happened in the episode. I was tired all week. 
Yes. Because of that. (laughs) Exactly. I finished at like 1230 and then I'm just like, what do I do with my hands? (laughs) (laughs) What purpose do my hands have right now? (laughs) Because everything's just shaking and I'm so amped up and I'm like, well, I can just get ready for the day now. Or I could just sit here and my handshake for the rest of the evening. Yeah, I couldn't sleep. I was so amped up. I was like, so yeah, I didn't go to bed this super late. And then I had to get up super early for a meeting. And I was like, this is all fine. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It it went, I watched Game of Thrones. I recorded Monday. I recorded Tuesday. I was just so tired. Wow. And and then I did something Wednesday where I was up late too. (laughs) And someone goes, I was like, I'm going to go to sleep early. I don't have anything. And he's like, I'd like the past two nights. I was like, yeah, just the past two nights. <laughs> You're like, listen, this is basically my life now. <laughs> it's just, I, I, I regret everything constantly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have no regrets for Game of Thrones, but mm-hmm. I do wish I had more sleep. But, I mean, I can sleep. It's summer for me now, so I can sleep now. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah, I, nope. It's just I'm not sorry. gonna happen. I'm just in this. I I've never recovered from grad school just being constantly exhausted. Yeah, I mean, yeah, my job is exhausting. I'm I'm excited to recharge and relax, and then I can sleep in after watching Game of Thrones for once. <laughs> the next the next three weeks are gonna be amazing. <laughs> gonna be amazing. Make some popcorn. Make have a charcuterie tray. Ooh, that sounds delicious. Oh man. I love a good charcuterie. So do you want to tell us what you're talking about this week? I am talking. um, So this is the thing about me. When I tell the stories and and the cases on fatalities, I take the information and I write it in a way that I think would be the way that someone else would want to hear it. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to tell you exactly what it's about because I don't want to give everything away. So I'm just going to say it's about the Whitaker family from Sugar Land, Texas. Have you heard this? You might know it as you hear it, but actually I think this is one of the cases that a lot of people don't know about. That's the problem is I listen to too much true crime that it all blends. It all starts to blend. All right, well, so you let me know what you know, and hopefully, you know, if you know, don't give it away. <laughs> Tell you the things I know when I know them, but not yeah, spoiling. But- Exactly. I always like to have a moment of a reveal. Like, I think that is is a good storytelling. So are you ready to hear about the Whitaker family? Yes. Okay, let's do it. So the Whitaker family lived in a gated community in the well-to-do area of Houston called Sugarland. And I mean, that's a great name, Sugarland. I'm assuming it's made out of sugar. I I mean, (laughs) that's the only assumption that can be made. (laughs) That or it's like sugar daddies and sugar whatever. Okay. Um, I mean, I I would accept that. (laughs) (laughs) So Kent and Trisha were happily married and proud of their two sons, 23-year-old Thomas, who went by Bart, and 19-year-old Kevin. (laughs) I know. I was like, Thomas might have been in the way to go, but who am I to judge? (laughs) I I mean, you do have weird name deviations because Peggy and Molly are both from Margaret. So, Oh, what? (laughs) Yeah. Peggy comes from Margaret. In what world? <laughs> uh, I used to know it. I had to look it up for my thesis because one of my accounts, the the guy had the ship and he named it like he had always called his wife like Molly or something like that or Maggie. <laughs> and then he goes, I'm going to call the ship after my wife. So this is a Molly or Polly. And I'm just like, wait, what? 
<laughs> you're like what are you even talking about when i hear bart i always think of the simpsons but specifically i think when he in the episode when the family goes to itchy and scratchy land <laughs> and and so they go into the gift shop and he's looking at the license plates with names on it mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's like there's no bart and he's like there's a bort like why is there a bort and no bart and then He's like, no one is named Bort. And he said, I'm sorry, are you talking to me? And she's like, no, I'm talking to my son. My son's name is also Bort. So, like, everyone in the (laughs) store has the name Bort. (laughs) It's really funny. Anyways, so, yeah, he, his name is Thomas. um, But he does go by Bart. And some of that might be because Trisha's maiden name is Bartley. So, it might have been a shout out to that. So, um... They're very proud of their sons. In fact, Bart, who experienced some trouble in high school, was just days away from his graduation at Sam Houston State University. And Kent and Trisha were thrilled to see their oldest son turn things around. So on December 10th, 2003, after Bart finished his last two final exams, the family celebrated. Bart was gifted with a $4,000 Rolex. <gasps> so that's what we're, that watch, you know, kind of indicates uh, how that family's doing. Doing well. <laughs> I think I got a sewing machine. That was what I was supposed to be gifted, and I still haven't gotten it. <laughs> um, hello. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to remember what I did get for my undergraduate graduation. I don't remember. Not a wa- not a $4,000 watch, that's for sure. <laughs> so he opened this box. He had the $4,000 Rolex watch inside, and I don't I didn't know this until I was uh, doing research on this case, but Rolex uh, Rolex always has their watches set to the the correct time. So you might get a watch and you have to set it, but no, no. Not here, because who's got time to set their watch? Rolex. Uh, Rolex. Why can't I say that? <laughs> Rolex is $4,000, so they're going to set the time for you. So after he got the watch, um, they went to a popular seafood restaurant for dinner. So they had food, and they did, you know, when it's like someone's big day, you get dessert, and they write out whatever in chocolate, either a happy birthday, but in this case, it was congratulations. They took photos. They did all that stuff. So when they were heading home, Kevin, the youngest son, asked to drive his mom's car, and so he was the one who took him home. They entered the gated community using a code and pulled into their driveway. Kevin, Trisha, and Kent headed up to the front door while Bart headed to his car because he had left his phone behind, and he wanted to talk to his girlfriend, Lynn. Of course. So he was over by his car, which was parked on the street, and Trisha was the first one to the door, but your youngest son always liked to go in first, maybe... You know, I'm not sure why. Maybe it's like, I'm in here first, or maybe it's like, I'm going to open the door for my mom. Like, maybe it's something like that. I'm going to assume he likes to open the door for his mom because he's a gentleman. Yes, a Texan, if you will, from (laughs) Sugarland, who is um, chivalrous. (laughs) Yes. So there's some of that. Like, I know, you know, depending on year... The, the kids would want to get in first, like, who can get on the dial-up internet? You know, like, who can who gets to the TV first? So it's like you have to get in the house first. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of reasons why he might have been first. So he opens the door, and as he steps in, he smiles before there's a pop sound. Oh. Some, yeah, there's someone inside the Whitaker home, and Kevin was shot, uh, shot directly in his chest. Ooh. Yeah. He fell bueno. to the floor. Yeah, and this is not good. He fell to the floor in the foyer of the home, and his mom, Trisha, screamed, Oh, God, no, don't you. And then before she could say anything else, there was another pop. 
that could be heard. And Trisha was also hit in the chest and she dropped to the floor next to her son. Kent, the husband and father, went toward his wife and through the door could see them both laying on the ground. He wasn't sure if Kevin was alive, but his wife Trisha was gasping for air and moaning. Bart, who could hear the shots, began to run up the driveway yelling, Dad! And as he yelled that, there was another pop. Kent was shot in the shoulder and was sprawling on the front porch. Bart ran past his dad inside and saw the shooter dressed in all black. He jumped over his mother and brother and tussled with the attacker. And then there was another pop. Bart was also shot and he went down. The shooter ran out the back door and jumped over the backyard fence. And basically, the Whitaker family on this night had been completely ambushed and left to die. So not doing good in Sugarland and a community you think is safe because of the gate and all that kind of stuff. I'm surprised he didn't because he had a cell phone. He didn't call 911. They, you'll hear later where he um, does do that, um, but not at that moment. And that's a really good point. Like, did you know? Sometimes it's so shocking. Like, do you drop your phone, or you know, the first thought is to protect the family, that sort of thing. Like, so, and and it's one of those things. Like, until you're in that situation, do you know? what you're gonna do but yeah like the first thing you would do is like let's get these people some help 911 and so actually it is a neighbor who lived next door his name is Cliff and he went to investigate after his son came downstairs and was like what are you guys watching on TV and he's like well what he's like I heard some noises like gunshots and he goes well it's not from the TV so he went out to investigate because he's like clearly something else is going on and he came upon his friend Kent bleeding but alive he could hear Trisha moaning, but was unclear on the status of the two boys. He could see Kevin, but he could not see Bart. So he told his son to call 911, and then Cliff attended to his neighbors. But his wife came out and was like, the shooter could still be inside. I mean, we know that the shooter is now gone, but they don't know that. Yeah. And so Cliff retreated to get his own gun. And then his wife was like, they're going to think you're the shooter and they're going to shoot you. And he was like, oh, you're right. That's not a good idea. So he just went back out and he sat with his friend and talked to him until the police and the EMTs could arrive, which occurred about 10 minutes approximately after the 911 call from Cliff's son. So, okay, there's more. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like, I, I like the way, like he was like, I'm going to defend us. But then his wife has the right thing. Like, if you have a gun, they're going to think you did this. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's just smart. But I also am like, but it's Texas, you know, it's Texas and these folks are all white. So it's yeah. like, you know, maybe it would be like you would get the, you know, put your gun down type of thing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it might not have been such a large issue. But it sounds like everyone had guns there. So it's like it might be anticipated when you go into a situation that people who are there might have guns. So maybe they go about it. Maybe there's a protocol. But um, in this case, he was like, that sounds like a good idea. I don't want to get shot tonight either. Yeah. So um, so the EMTs arrive and Trisha was first airlifted to the hospital. And then Kent was airlifted directly after her because they both suffered grave um, gunshot injuries. Kevin, unfortunately, was dead on arrival. Oh. So the youngest son and uh, Bart's little brother was shot directly in the chest. He got the, the brunt of the attack, if you will, and he died minutes after being shot. And they found Bart between a couch and an end table laying on the phone and bleeding. So it appeared that he was calling 911 
from the living room or whatever room had the couch. So Bart was shot but appeared not to have life-threatening injuries. So as the EMTs tended to his parents and his brother, he spoke with the police about what happened. He appeared to be in shock but described the family being shot as they entered the home. And when he entered the house, seeing a man dressed all in black. When the police asked him for more of a description of the perpetrator, Bart said the man sounded black. Hmm. And I know. (laughs) How do you sound black? Exactly. And it's dark in the house, and then the person's wearing all black, so it sounds like he doesn't really have a description. So if you don't have a description, I would just say that, because he sounded black. Doesn't sound right. (laughs) No. No. And it's like... Yeah, exactly. How does one sound black? Please tell me. Um, But after the police talked to him, you know, they went about looking into the house and he went to the hospital for surgery. So basically, by the end of the celebratory night, all four Whitakers had been shot. Again, Kevin died in the foyer. And unfortunately, Trisha died en route to the hospital that she was being airlifted to. And Kent's hemis, is that how you say it? I don't know. I don't know enough about anatomy, but basically his bone shattered and it was a grave injury, but he survived. And wait, he, wait, wait, where's the bone? It's, he was shot in his shoulder. Okay. And so it ripped apart like the muscle and it shattered the bone that's in that area. Ooh. Yeah. When you hear the word shattered and bone, which is inside your body, does not sound good, right? It's not, if anything, you know, if, it's going to be painful. It's going to be a painful recovery, right? My friend, uh, my brother's friend fell off a wall and he shattered his leg and um, no, thank you. No, thank you. So very serious injury. Yeah, I'd be concerned because if it shatters, you can get pieces of bone probably in your bloodstream and that's really oh, dangerous. I didn't even think of that. That sounds gross. <laughs> and pain. <laughs> I've already grossed you out enough today. Yeah, off mic. She's telling me all sorts of stories that were giving me the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, my brother's thumb was almost ripped off. It's fine. He still uh, has it. Yeah. NBD. No big deal. <laughs> he still has his thumb. And I'm over here like, where's my trash can so I can Ralph into it? <laughs> but uh, Bart had the least damaging injury. And he so both him and his father survived the ambush. He also had shoulder surgery. So I don't remember who, but if Kent's left shoulder was the one that was shot, then it was um, Bart's right shoulder. They had like the opposite injury. Um, but uh, Bart's was, uh, didn't, his, none of his bones shattered. So he didn't have as serious of an injury. Can I so, make a prediction? Yeah. So this seems like, and I keep bringing up this case and I can't remember who it is, but it's like the, the matricide one where the, or, the one where the mom kills all her kids and then she shoots herself in the shoulder and oh, drives Diane to the Downs. Yeah. Yes. It seems a little too fishies. Ki- yeah. <laughs> That's why this is called the Whitaker family and doesn't go by the name of well, let's find out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that night Kent experienced a lot of anger, and again, this is the father, experienced a lot of anger and hatred towards the shooter who killed his wife and youngest son and shot him and his oldest son. But Kent was a devout Christian and reflected on the dark nature of revenge. And that was not a path he necessarily wanted to go down. So that night he vowed to forgive the shooter. And so that was something I didn't put a lot of time into, but the family was very religious and Mm -hmm. spent a lot of time 
talking about the Bible and going to church and, and things of that nature. And so it was around Christmas time. This is December 10th. So they already had everything up and they really loved Christmas. But um, one of the things that I've read was that they definitely put the Christ in Christmas. Like that was really the focus. So this was something that isn't surprising that anyone who's lost two family members would absolutely be destroyed and devastated and angry and hate them and want to kill them and do all that. But he decided that was not the path he wanted to go down. Which is really impressive and amazing. Yes. When I hear stories of forgiveness, it's something that I talk about in my classes um, that I teach that we talk about. We do talk about revenge and we talk about forgiveness and this idea that a lot of times just like general things that happen in life, we're not very forgiving of. But Mm -hmm. when you hear about people who've lost their children or they've lost these people in their life that and they forgive the killer, it's to me, it's like how can we not forgive someone for making a mistake on a day-to-day basis, but here's someone who's forgiving their child's killer. Like it's, I don't know how they do it. Right. It's, I think it's also a coping mechanism because you can't live with that much hate. Yeah. It'll just eat you alive. That's the thing is like, I think a lot of forgiveness, a lot of times it's the person who's being forgiven, who believes that like that's for them, but forgiveness is for ourselves, right? Like Mm -hmm. that so that you can manage those things. And so do you want to live your life hateful and seeking out revenge? And I mean, that takes away basically any revenge movie that has ever existed in Hollywood, (laughs) but you're more likely to live a full life, a more peaceful life if you go the route of forgiveness, but no one can tell anyone to forgive someone else. Um, and everyone's on their own timetable. And so this was his timetable. That might not be the case for other people. Right. I, so, I think that's important to, to acknowledge because yeah. you always get those people who are like, you should forgive him. And it's like, no, you need to go through your own soul searching yeah. in order to forgive someone. And it it's like, everyone has varying levels inside based on what a person does. Mm -hmm. Like you can forgive someone, but you can also still be wary of them. Yeah. Forgive, but don't forget. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. And that's the thing is like, I generally try to stay away from telling people how to feel or what they should do in that sense. Cause a lot of it comes down to, we might have an external point of view and not have the same level of hurt or pain that they might be experiencing. So it should truly be up to them to decide how they're going to cope with it. And I think there's some healthy ways to do it. I think there's some unhealthy ways. And I think that Kent really took an active approach on having a healthy focus on how he was going to approach what had happened to him and his family. Yeah. And I I think that he was probably better off because of that. Oh, yeah, definitely. It helps you heal faster. (laughs) Oh, yeah, for sure. So the father and son shared a hospital room which, um, you know, that's great because it's like, you know, if you're in different parts of the hospital or whatever. So they shared a room and they had lots of visitors, um, including the police. Uh, During the investigation, the police came across some interesting information that they first shared with Bart and then second shared with Kent. Sam Houston State University called and indicated Bart was not scheduled to graduate. In fact, Bart hadn't been enrolled for school in years. Oh, what? Yeah. So they're celebrating his graduation, $4,000 Rolex watch that had the correct time. They went to that fancy seafood place, but he was not graduating however many days later. I think this happened on a Wednesday night and he was set to graduate Friday or Saturday. Um, And so Bart was told, the cop talked to him first and he was basically like, 
you know, it, it didn't work out and my parents don't know and, you know, so on and so forth. And so then Bart was no longer in the room and the cop talked to Kent and told him what was going on. And Kent was furious with his son for lying to him and Trisha for so long. But he also had this reoccurring thought, quote, this will derail the investigation into the police finding the real killer because they will focus on Bart as a suspect, end quote. So he was mad at his son, but he also didn't want it to impact the investigation. So... But here's the thing. The police were already concerned about the case. Mm-hmm. On the night of the shooting, the Whitaker home looked like it had been robbed. Or did it? Someone <laughs> had tried to make it look like a robbery. The place wasn't ransacked. Instead, and this is one of the weirdest things I've ever seen in my entire life, they opened all the drawers and the dressers, but they opened them up all to the same spot, right? So, like... All eight drawers were pulled out and they were all at the same level, meaning so this if they were opened all the way. So that's not how people ransack apartments or houses and stuff like that. They like go through drawers, they shut drawers to go into another one. Like why would Mm. the top drawer be open if you were then looking in the bottom drawer, right? Like so it just is this weird, really weird thing where the drawers were open, but that's basically it. So nothing appeared to be missing except for a Ruger 22 pistol and cash found in an obscure place that someone wouldn't just stumble upon. I think it was in an envelope and it was taped behind a TV in a closet. So it's not something that you would have found like digging through a drawer. That right? is a clever place to hide money. I know. Well, now anyone listening to this will be like, well, I know where your money is now. <laughs> You're assuming I have two TVs, which is assuming way too much. You're assuming I have money to put in an envelope to tape to the back to a television. And put, also, I only have one closet in this apartment, so you're assuming I have more than one closet. There's a lot of assumptions going on here. <laughs> you you um, should stop assuming people. Please. Yeah, exactly, because we all know what happens. Ass, you, me. <laughs> <laughs> So basically, there was no sign of a break-in, and the only damage they found was that the shooter appeared to pry open a lockbox to use Kevin's gun in the attack. And just as a reminder, Kevin was the youngest son. We later learned that the shooter was dropped off at the house and was waiting for the family to return from dinner. And a second person had been watching the family at the restaurant. Once they were done eating, the second person followed them home, and no one noticed that the car snuck in behind them at the gate where they typed in the code. This person pulled behind the home and waited for the uh, for the shooter driving away once the shooter was inside the car. So we know that there's now two perpetrators, at least one was the shooter and one was the driver. And that the family had basically had no idea. They didn't pay, didn't notice someone watching them, didn't notice someone following them. None of that. I'm just going to say that's a hell of a lot of privilege to assume no one's following you because exactly. I always assume... <laughs> I'm like, that person's been behind me for approximately 10 seconds. I'm going to turn left and see what happens. And it's like, I live in a town with four roads. So odds are they're going the same direction. (laughs) For me, it's not that. It's like, I just kind of observe what's around me. Mm -hmm. Because I'm in prime murdering age. Unless I have a husband. Oh, shit. Yeah. Oh, I'm probably not in prime murdering um, age, but I'm still like, lock the doors check over your shoulder <laughs> like the whole nine for all of that safety first and not and and they were in a gated community and they might not you know 
I think that's part of the problem is people always assume that nothing's going to happen to them or it won't happen here or it won't happen. And the thing is, I live in a small town. You might have less odds of something happening here, but it doesn't mean nothing will ever happen here. You know, so it's like, let's take some precautions. But at the same time, never blame the victim because it's the assholes who followed them and went through the gated community and shot them that are to blame for sure. They were just living their life. Exactly. Living their life, eating their seafood, celebra- celebrating. And I think a lot of times when we're also in a good mood, we might put our guards down too. So mm-hmm. so after, um, so they're in the hospital. After that, the police actually conducted walkthroughs of the crime scene separately with Kent and Bart. So mm-hmm. Kent went first and he described that night of December 10th, 2003. He was very animated. He was very clear on what happened and he was very succinct in what he had to say about that night. Bart, on the other hand, was vague about the events of the night and wasn't clear on what happened and just, you know, just didn't seem to have much investment in it or anything. So they took this information and it was added to the investigation. Two days later, the funeral for Kevin and Trisha took place and the pastor, Matt Barnhill, described the shooting like this during the eulogy. Quote, in some communities in California, they have earthquakes. This is Sugarland's earthquake. Our lives are shaken and our sense of safety and well-being is shattered. End quote. But they have no idea. <laughs> are you ready for this? I'm strapped in. Okay, good. <laughs> Later that day. Oh, you're ready. You're like nervous. You're like, ah. I, I'm, I'm strapped in like for a roller coaster. I'm ready. Okay. So later that day, a young man named Adam Hip walked into the police station and told the primary detective on the case, Marshall Slot, that he believed that Bart has something to do with his family's murder. Slot asked Adam how he would know, and Adam told him that Bart talked about him wanting to kill his parents and his brother over two years ago. What? Yeah. So this happened in 2003. So in 2001, Adam is saying that at that time, Bart was talking about killing his family and his brothers or his brother, excuse me. So um, besides lying to his family about being in school, there was some history that added to Adam's claim about Bart being involved. Adam and Bart were friends in high school. They would weightlift and talk about money. I'm sorry. And they did it like in the attic of a house where I'm like, that feels like the last place you would weightlift. I think it'd be like a garage or a basement or a special weightlifting room. I don't know. (laughs) I'm just picturing you drop a weight. It just goes through the like. Exactly. 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 Like a cartoon. (laughs) Yeah. I'm just thinking like maybe my floors in my house aren't sturdy enough. And I'm just like, why would you weightlift in an attic? I have no idea. It's also going to be so hot up there. True. Exactly. Maybe they're trying to like wrestlers and sweat out some of the the weight too. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, so both were from well-off families and were accustomed to getting things from their parents. You could say they were spoiled, so it's not surprising they would talk a lot about money and getting things and and having things. And so having been raised in a loving, well-to-do family, Bart had opportunities that many people would never have. However, something was not right. In high school, Bart and his friends planned to break into their high school. First time they tried to break in, they got spooked and they left. Um, But then later that night, they went back and they stole electronics. They would do this. They would do this more frequently. And that included breaking into the school that Bart's mom, Trisha, worked at. So he robbed his mom's school. 
and she was devastated and from what i read embarrassed about what her son had done i mean i don't blame her like yeah it's like where she works uh you know i read something that said that they even she would go to a different grocery store further away and they changed churches because she didn't want to have to face her coworkers and friends about what had happened oh that's so i just she's just trying to live her life and her son's being a garbage person exactly and and they don't know exactly why right like so you have a family that you know i said from the beginning is like they have they're happily married there was nothing that indicated anything about the parents there was no abuse there was no emotional physical there was they were they were good together there was no fighting there there was nothing between him and his brother so it appears that he grew up in a house that was that was truly loving and supportive and cared about him and and was proud of him and loved him even when he participated in these things so he was uh, expelled and put on probation and they also sent him to see a psychologist and so uh, after seeing him for many, 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 many visits, I think over 10 times, um, one of the things the goal was to have her write a letter so that he could be reinstated to a school. But um, I think he was expelled and he went to a different school so that not that didn't end up being the case. However, she did diagnose him. And so I want to read some of that to you. So it says, Bart was described as, quote, an egocentric man who had an, an inflated sense of self-importance combined with an intense mistrust of others. He had a disputatious, actually, I don't know what that word is. He had, basically, he was described as cold, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> he had a cold demeanor that invariably invokes exasperation and animosity in friends, relatives, and coworkers. His guiding principle, principle is that of outwitting others, exerting power over them before they can exploit him, end quote. So he was diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder, sort of these ideas of over-exaggeration of things that he has done well, um, grandiose ideas, um, seeing himself as superior to other people. And um, But she did write a letter of support for Bart, and she wrote that he had an adjustment disorder instead of the narcissistic personality disorder. So from what I gathered, it seemed that So there's narcissism. I mean, I talk about this in my classes too. So we talk about narcissism. A lot of us can experience being an egotist. We can have that. uh, We can all have that ego, right? And we can be narcissistic, but that's not diagnosed. Narcissistic personality disorder, there's a test for it. You can be diagnosed with it. Um, That is a disorder. And it sounds like it might be more intense or more severe than the adjustment disorder. So I think, as I understood it, that by putting that he had an adjustment disorder, like he never felt like he fit in and that sort of thing, um, was a disservice. Because if he had narcissistic personality disorder, there were some other things that were going on. In fact, he was compared to, and this is so funny because I did not intend for this connection to happen, um, that I have heard of the story, I've read a book about it, but I had not realized that this connection was made. He was compared to killers Leopold and Loeb, which I have an episode about them on (laughs) fatalities. And so in 1924, they killed 14-year-old Bobby Franks. They were fluent, intelligent, and bored 
as heck. Young men who wanted to complete the perfect murder and to experience the thrill of the kill. And so in that episode, I actually talk about other crimes even closer to 2019, like the last several years, where affluent teenagers are bored and so they um, don't have any engagement or excitement or involvement when things happen. So they sort of ump the up the ante and they keep doing things and doing things and doing things until they sort of get that high, if you will. And so he got bored very quickly with the break-ins and sort of like it's on to the next. And he called this quote, his adventure time, which I don't know. I don't know if that's so much an adventure breaking in and stealing from schools, but cool. (laughs) Yeah. It's cool. 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 It reminded me of the, uh, affluenza teen. Yes. Yeah. And you're just like, your parents needed to make you get a job or something. You needed to have some activities that you just sucked your soul a little bit. Yeah. I just think they, they just get whatever they've wanted or they don't have any trouble. They don't have to work for anything. So then it's like, they're just very bored. And so when you're at that level, it takes so much more to sort of take you out of that bored state in comparison to like someone like if I was bored, it's like, oh, but then a friend called and was I'm like, oh, hey, what's going on? It like completely yeah. changed things versus like going out and breaking into a school or starting to talk about killing your parents. Right. So the question is, did Bart have anything to do with the ambush of his family? And if so, was this about a thrill kill? So Adam informed the police. He's the one that originally said that Bart told him about wanting to kill his parents. So, um, Adam informed the police that Bart hated his family, which was so surprising because literally there was nothing about, they seemed like the n- very nice people, um, no malicious intent to raise their son in a way that would lead to something where he would want to act out or, you know, I just, it just seems like, I hate to say it, it just seems like a good family. And I realize like, we don't know what's going on behind closed doors, but there's no evidence of abuse or, or mistreatment, right? And so that's what makes this difficult because it doesn't make sense why Adam would hate his, or excuse me, why Bart would hate his family. It's it's legitimately like the Dateline family where they're like, Keith Morrison is just like, and they had the perfect family living exactly. in the suburbs of Sugarland. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, I don't want to go that route, but like there's honestly nothing that would point to any sort of reason why. Um, however, this is from Bart's point of view. Okay. He felt like his mother loved Kevin more, Kevin being his youngest brother, and that she cared so much for, um, Kevin more than Bart. Uh, Kevin was considered in Bart's eyes to be lazy and have all these problems because he had all these problems and Bart was smart and had it together that his parents had to spend more time with Kevin and pay more attention to him. And therefore there was no attention given to Bart and all the wonderful things that he did, which I think might bring in that grandiose idea and also him seeing people as inferior. Like he saw his brother as inferior to him and um, whether that perception, you know, that's his perception. And so he assumed that his parents loved Kevin more and paid more attention to him. So it kind of created, I think, a sibling rivalry. And so Bart hated Kevin and um, it seemed like he liked his dad a little bit more than his mom, uh, assuming that his mom was the one that that loved everyone that loved Kevin more. <sighs> yeah, it's Ugh. yeah, it's tough because, again, it, it's 
his filter on life. And but the thing is, perception is reality. So if Bart perceives his family to pay more attention to Kevin, that is his reality. And so a lot of that, I think, is based on these ideas and through his filter, which might be um, altered because of the narcissistic personality disorder. And, and he's not getting treated for that. Ex- apparently not. Like, all I, all we know at this point is that he's on probation because the diagnosis uh, was adjustment disorder, right? So, uh, yeah. I, you know, and that's a really great question. I would have to dig more, but, I, I mean, I read an entire book about this case, and I didn't see anything about meds, per se, that I recall. So, Or even, like, therapy to, like, confront it and, like, deal with it more, because you said... He met with a therapist 10 times, but it doesn't seem like he did it continue. Yeah, because he went to school. And so you might remember at the beginning that he was at Sam Houston University, but Mm -hmm. actually his first year he was at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. And so when he went there, he met um, some new friends. He met Will and Justin. They all felt a little like outsiders, but got along well. They watched movies, played video games, and of course skipped classes. (laughs) And during their gaming sessions, Bart started bringing up the idea of killing his parents and how he would do it. He discussed plans with Will and Justin, but they thought he had a dry, morbid sense of humor and never took him seriously until the plan started to be in motion. Oh, no. So Will and Justin were going to take care of Bart's family um, specifically because if his parents died, that um, Bart would inherit their $1 million insurance policy and that he would, and he never specified how much, but he said that he would give them a good amount of money from the insurance. And I think as someone who always had things handed to him, that I think he could see when other people would be sort of won over. Because even though he was seen as cold, he was very likable. He had a girlfriend, he had friends, he had like all the stuff where people were charmed by him. He was very likable and popular and that sort of thing. But I think he just preyed on other people um, who had less self-esteem than he did. And um, basically knowing that these individuals could have been better off with with some money, right? So sort of playing off people's need for cash or to pay off. <laughs> we talked about student loans, student loans or, or whatever yeah. the case is. So um, Will and Justin were, uh, I hate to say this, but the first that uh, Bart talked to about killing his family, but the first go at it failed. Oh my um, god! Like, when I, yeah, <laughs> like how, like you you keep telling people, people will remember that because they're like, huh, weird conversation starter. Yeah, exactly. And then I think it became something where they became scared of of Bart, and like he would say things like, "Well, I know where you live," and they would laugh. He goes, "Well, I also know where your mom lives," you know, like just things like where it felt like he was threatening them. And so I think that if they wanted to back out, they didn't feel like they could. And I think they tried to maybe like rationalize it by saying, "Well, I'll get some money." So the first time um, that they tried, the alarm went off in the house and the two aborted the plan. Um, Will disappeared after that. He just packed up his stuff and he was like, deuces, I'm out. Um, Smart kid. Yeah. (laughs) But Bart, oh, here we go, assured Justin that he had another friend who would help. So this is where Adam Hip comes back into the story and he is part of the plan which I think is interesting because he's the one who went to the police and the way it was presented when he went to the police was that he talked to 
Bart talked to Adam about it. But here's the thing. Adam was in on the second plan, and it could have been because he was scared. I do think that does cause people to do things that they wouldn't normally do. But when it's presented by him originally, it's as if he just heard the story versus knowing what the exact plan was, right? Yeah. So the second plan also failed. Justin, in a stolen car, ran out of gas. (laughs) I just, the irony. Yeah, and then Justin had a friend, Jennifer, who they had been best friends since, like, middle school, and they were all at Baylor together, and she sort of, she didn't like Bart, she didn't really, and so, like, she went over there, and it was, like, really weird, and she wanted him to come to some sorority thing, and he wouldn't go, and so he, she sort of broke him down to the point where he said what was happening, and she called the police, and I think someone else called the police too, but at least Jennifer did. And so both Bart's dad and police checked in and were like, what's going on? Like, there's this like ridiculous call that happened, you know, what's going on? And Bart basically was like, this was a prank, you know? So it's like, okay, but is it? (laughs) I mean, I've played some pranks, but I've never played, I'm plotting to kill my parents prank. Exactly. I hate pranks as it is because in general, pranks make someone else look silly in front of other people which is like a a threatening like a face threat so as like a communication person i'm like oh let's help people keep their face rather than make them look silly you know so i'm not a huge prank person like i feel like i have a sense of humor and i can laugh at things this is obviously not a prank and obviously not a joke like yeah no no, i just like to do pranks basically jump scares just okay you're okay then (laughs) yeah those are the kinds like normally it's just like that because I like you could do the same thing to me and I will legitimately scream yeah so I'm like yeah if I do it to you I just grew up it's like yeah tit for tat yeah just don't don't get anyone hurt and don't make anyone cry yeah it's yeah those things you just you just have to be careful because a lot of times you don't know how people are going to react with pranks and especially this like the police were called but that was probably a good thing because this was legit um, and so after that, he let Bart left uh, Baylor and he attended Sam Houston State University. He got a job at like a restaurant club sort of situation and he made some new friends. Um, he would uh, bring invite people over to his uh, his house that his parents had paid for. So he's living in his parents house near Sam Houston State University. He's working and he's quote unquote going to school. So what he told his dad is when he found out he wasn't in school, he Bart basically told his dad, well, it's because I'm so busy at work. And when everyone left, I got all the hours. And so I couldn't keep up with my classes. And that I just never told you because I was scared to tell you. Um, OK, but, sure, sure, yeah. sure. <laughs> That's his reasoning. Right. So he um, makes friends. He has them come over and they hang out at his house a lot because um, he's nearby um to the the restaurant and two of the people specifically are chris brashears and stephen champagne and (laughs) i know cheers (laughs) no it's not a cheers (laughs) uh but the discussion of plans to kill his parents came up again and the plans from before were recycled so actually I, I kind of skipped over this, but it was like, what is the best way to do it? Would you have people come into house and set the house on fire? Would you set up a robbery? Would you do all this? And then they decided on like the robbery um, situation. So they kind of went through all these scenarios of like how they could do it and, and essentially get away with it and get get because the idea was the parents have to die to get the insurance money. Mm-hmm. And so 
Um, so the plans were recycled uh, with these friends. Chris would end up being the shooter and Steven would be the getaway driver. And so there was different plans for how this was going to happen. Um, Bart called his dad to go out to dinner one night and the dad was like, I don't have time tonight. And Bart got really upset. And then Steven was kind of like, I didn't even know this was happening today. So it was kind of one of those things that it would have been like, it's happening now, let's go. But they had planned out a lot of stuff. So they, um, Steven took his mom's car. Bart gave him license plates to, stolen license plates to put on the car in case they were watched or were on camera. Where Bart do you left, get stolen license plates? I mean, I'm not, I listen to True Crime Podcasts and I have one, but I don't know about crime. I'm like a rule follower. <laughs> so I don't know how you get them. <laughs> I guess you would just take them off someone's car. Yeah, like but... maybe you just take them off someone's car and call it a day. So um, they left uh, Bart and Chris left in Bart's car and they drove to like a mall area where there's a parking complex. Steven left the house like 20 minutes later, met them, put the, the what do you call them, the license plates on his car. Chris and Bart left again and then Stephen waited and left so they wouldn't be leaving at the same time. They drove to where Bart is from. Stephen went to the restaurant and Bart dropped off Chris and uh, uh, he went home. That's when he received the watch and they went out to dinner and that's when Stephen followed them home. Um, they were had bags with stuff in it like rope and trash bags and all this. they had like all this stuff right and so one of the things that they also had was phones like um burner phones and so when chris got to the house that he went through and quote unquote ransacked the house no you did not and during the process he lost his glove which is also kind of funny but um how do you lose a glove he, he couldn't figure it out. So he called Steven and Steven, who was really scared about doing this whole thing, kind of like switched a uh, flipped a switch and was basically like, find it. And then like, you know, hung up and that sort of thing. And the glove was actually found by Bart's car parked on the street. So <laughs> he dropped it. But when he got out of the car, I'm assuming, <laughs> I don't know. Like, Talent. come on, bro. Come on, bro. Um, so basically, um, that, so they fall back and then um, Chris shot everyone and they had planned to shoot Bart in a way that Bart would live and recover. Um, so that's why his injury was less damaging than the others, but also why he was the fourth person in the house and why he's waiting by his car, getting his quote unquote phone that he forgot. Um, and so afterwards, Chris, you know, ran out the back door. He got into the car with Steven. They drove back to the area where they're, where they were living near Sam Houston State University. And they drove a little bit further away and went to a bar and they drank beers all night using the money that Chris had stolen from the envelope that was taped to the back of the television. So they went and drank beer from the money they stole from the Whitakers that Chris then shot and killed two of them and shot the other two attempting to kill the father so that i thought i was like really come on man like i think they needed a drink after that though because yeah totally yeah and like they didn't speak to each other they went back to the house um and that might have been before they went to the to get the beer too i don't remember Mm -hmm. that timeline but basically 
Chris was dressed in all black. He changed his clothes. He put the clothes in one of the, the duffel bags they had. They collected the license plates, all that kind of stuff. And they went up to this bridge that was over a river. They made it look like they had car trouble. And Chris dropped the, the bags into the river. And then they went and, and drank beer. Um, and then as the investigation came up, um, because uh, Chris then uh, Chris went, had to move home, and so did Bart, because Bart was now living with his dad after the murders, and so he had to leave his house. So Chris was living there, so then he didn't have anywhere to live, so he went to his parents' house. And then Stephen moved into Bart's house so that they would have he have someone that take over the lease or whatever. So that's really interesting. So the police come to talk to Steven because he's living in Bart's house, right? Yeah. And so, but he played it off like he didn't know anything. And, you know, several weeks go by. They've had Adam involved in the this the investigation. They put a wire on him, um, and but nothing comes of that. And February 2004, again, the murder happened in December. Steven was visited by the police and then went to meet Bart at TGI Fridays to talk about what happened. Yeah. Get some, get some potato skins, you know, Yeah, just get all the appetizers, get all the apps. Oh my God. It's so good. The apps. Mm. Okay. Um, but basically over TGI Fridays, Bart talked about how his dad was still alive and that they weren't going to get the money. So he was actually talking about trying to get rid of his father two months after, the murders happened because he, they weren't going to get any money. So everything was for naught, if you will. Like, he still hated his family, apparently, but they weren't going to get any money from it. So Stephen also wore a wire um, to try to get Bart to confess to what was going on. And Bart started to feel some pressure. And because he had moved back home to Sugarland, he was working in a local restaurant. And one of his co-workers was from Mexico and his coworker Rudy Rias talked about, um, well, if you need to go down to Mexico, I can take you. So when Bart started to feel that pressure, his friend took him to Mexico on June 28, 2004. And Bart lived with his family for like a year, taking on his friend's name, Rudy Rias, which was the American version of, uh, version of his name, <laughs> and basically found a girlfriend did work for the family there was like some flood and he like saved some people so people just like knew him as this like really nice gringo you know like all this kind of stuff and then um he was brought back because mexico mexico usually does not participate in extradition um Mm -hmm. or they do however no they don't sorry i said that wrong they don't participate in it however they call this an immigration um error or problem and so Bart got sent back to Texas. <laughs> <laughs> and at that point, Stephen was in uh, maybe the Marines, something like that. And he was actually trying to be um, a specialist with like special information, like a high security position. And that yeah. got denied because of the police. And Stephen was brought back to Texas. So Chris, Stephen and uh, Bart were all in jail at the same time. And basically this is what happened because the case was built against Bart. And so Bart was convicted for masterminding the murders of his brother and his mother and the attempted murder of his father in 2007, and he was sentenced to death by lethal injection. Chris Brashears, the shooter, was sentenced to life in prison, and Stephen Champagne, the driver, received a 15-year sentence, which was a plea deal because he um, 
testified against them. Um, there was a lot of, there are some people who are upset because Chris Brashears got a life sentence and he was the one who shot everyone and Bart received the death penalty um, when he did not specifically shoot anyone. However, he was the one that put everything in motion. So all of his appeals uh, to overturn the death sentence were denied. And his father, who, if you recall, vowed to forgive the shooter, mm-hmm. has never wavered from that night in hospital and has never wavered in forgiveness. And he supports his son because his son is his only living family member. And so he appealed and said, I am the only living victim and I don't want to be victimized again. So the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles voted seven to zero to overturn the death penalty to life in prison. And 30 minutes before his execution, the Texas governor, Greg Abbott, ruled Bart would spend the rest of his life in prison. So 30 minutes before he was executed, it was overturned because they didn't want to victimize Kent all over again. And so in a news article about the execution being overturned, Bart said in response to that happening, he wasn't thankful for himself. He was thankful for his father, that his father wouldn't have to lose another family member. And during all this, Kent has spoken and been a part of this idea of forgiveness and he's remarried and just living, trying to live this life of peace. But he, from the night in the hospital was always on board with his son. Um, like he was going to forgive the shooter and, and that's what he's done. He's forgiven his son. So that is the case of the Whitaker family should be more aptly named Bart Whitaker, which by the way, one last fun fact, and I hate when people <laughs> say fun facts, so I hate myself right now. Um, but he, when he went to prison, he changed his name to Tom back to Thomas instead of Bart because he wanted a fresh start. So he is now <laughs> Thomas Whitaker. So it should be called <laughs> Thomas Whitaker. <laughs> I'm sorry. I love, I'm going to prison. I want a fresh start. <laughs> <laughs> well, like that he is trying to get over what what he did however um the book i read which was a great book is called this is why i couldn't name it at the beginning it's called savage son and it's written by Corey mitchell and it is a wonderful um wonderfully written true crime novel and there's huge sections from the trial um specifically from the the sentencing about why he should be sentenced to life and not to um to death and bart continues to have these sort of inklings of what he was diagnosed with when he was in high school these sort of ideas he's vague he's just like he's you know superior Hmm. those sorts of things so it just doesn't come off very well but his uncle and his dad um testify and speak on his behalf that he should be sentenced to life and that is where he is in texas sentenced to life he will live his life, but in prison. <laughs> yeah, that's just, I had heard this case, but not for a while. It's been a while since I've heard a good covering of it. And it's just insane. Anytime there's like family annihilator kind of situations, you're yeah. just like, oh my gosh. Yeah. And at first it feels like he did it because he's got himself into this situation where he's no longer in school and that sort of thing. And like, it's almost like he doesn't know what to do. So it's like this, well, my graduation is happening, so I have to kill them because I've not been at school. But it's so more than that, like the money, but also that he hated them. And and I don't think 
I don't know if he like hated them or he hated them through the filter of how he perceived everyone because a lot of this didn't seem true. None of it seemed like the case, but that's what he believed because that's what he perceived. And that makes perception very dangerous, I think. But in this case, more dangerous because he has narcissistic personality disorder. Yeah. Untreated. <laughs> exactly. Untreated. So yeah, that's my story. Yeah. It's intense. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I like it. I like intense stories. Yeah. Uh, do you want to tell everyone where they can find you? Yes. If you're into friendship, I'm Best Forever's Pod on all the social media sites, and I'm on all your favorite podcatchers. Fatalities, which again is spelled T-E-A-S, is Fatalities Pod on all the social media, and that is available on all your favorite podcatchers. So that's where you can find me. Yeah. And uh, you'll be you'll hear her promo after this, so Woo-hoo. you'll be ready. Yeah. And next week, I'm going to be telling a historical story, so that'll be fun. Yay! I'm ready for history. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we'll see you next week, Collective. Bye! Bye-bye! Are you a true crime junkie? Do you talk about true crime with your friends all of the time? And are there cases that have stuck with you for so many years because of geographic or emotional closeness? If so, then welcome to Fatalities. I'm Elisa Lucas, and this is the podcast where I explore true crime cases over tea with the help of my friends. Because without tea, friends, and good conversation, there's nothing but darkness and chaos. So grab a warm cup of tea and join me as my friends and I discuss the cases that have struck a chord with us and the related issues that might help us understand why such horrible crimes have occurred. The podcast is dropped every other Wednesday and is available on such podcatchers as Apple, Podbean, Spotify, and so much more. You may follow Fatalities on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, but don't forget that T's is spelled T-E-A-S because here is where we spill the tea. Even though we live abroad, as women of Indian origin, we have a common thread that binds us together because of our strong cultural background. NRA Woman is a platform for women to share their stories and experiences on various topics. Our podcast is about inspiring NRA women and their amazing stories. Some of the stories we've covered include growing up in a joint family in India, adopting a child as a single woman, and rebuilding one's life after the loss of a child. Take a listen. We hope you'll be inspired or learn something new. I'm Bettina. And I'm Lenora, and we're the voices behind NRI Woman Podcast. We're all heart. Just look for NRI Woman wherever you get your podcasts or find us at nriwoman.com. New episodes come out every Monday. Make sure you subscribe. To Domesticity, we're available on all podcatchers. Remember to rate, review, subscribe to help spread the word or just force other people to listen to it. Our Facebook and Twitter are at domestic podcast and our instagram is at the cult of domesticity we also have podcast merch at threadless uh as well if you want to support us financially or show some appreciation we have a paypal tip jar and a patreon which has some pretty great perks any topic suggestions feel free to email us at domesticpodcast at gmail.com remember to stay domestic and cult free